I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. Today, while well, I'm Liz Stahl, I'm an Extension Educator in Crops out of the Worthington Regional Office, and we welcome Dr. Jeff Coulter. He's our Extension Corn Specialist uh, with the University of Minnesota Extension, and Dr. Seth Nave. He's our Extension Soybean Specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. And again, we'd like to thank uh, University of Minnesota and generous support from uh, the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council for this program today. So um, with that, I just want to provide a little bit of background. You know, again, we try to hit hot topics and progress of the uh, cropping season as it goes in these sessions. And you know, if you look at the U latest USDA uh, crop progress report for Minnesota, and this is as of Monday, uh, May 15th, you know, statewide corn was 61% planted uh, compared to five-year average of 58%. Uh, statewide soybeans were at 30% planted versus a five-year average of 37%. So we're pretty close there. Um, and I know in my area here in southwestern, south central Minnesota, you know, a lot of people were pretty much done with corn or really close to done and making a good dent into soybean. Other areas, of course, they've been more delayed in planting and, and are uh, able to make some more progress here finally. But in sections of the state, uh, we got a lot of rain last week and uh, some areas pretty significant amounts. You know, if you look at the National Weather Service and looking at maps, you know, for the southern part of the state, particularly big area of south central Minnesota, you know, a lot of the area got at least two inches of rain. Some spots got three, four, five, six, eight inches or more, um, even up to 10 or more uh, in some isolated areas. We've got water standing in fields. It's been standing in areas for a while. Ditches are full and it's going to be a while before some of these areas dry out. So brings up a lot of questions today that um, you know I'm, our guests can help address. And again, if you have any questions, please enter those into the uh, Q&A box. But I guess the first question that I see, you know, coming up too, if you did plant and the crop is underwater, you know, what's our prognosis for that? How long can that crop, you know, stay uh, alive? You know, what are we thinking about? Uh, um, what's our what's our prognosis for potential here? Will those seedlings survive and what F factors could influence that? So um, I don't know, Jeff, if I want to have you take that question first and then we can turn it over to Seth too to see what his take would be on the soybean end. But first of all, on the corn end, what do you think there? Yeah, with these uh, temperatures, typically about four days, the plants can survive underwater. Uh, the surviving plant should have new growth coming out of the whorls about three to five days after the water has resided. Um, you can also split the stalks and see if the growing point is still survived or if it has started to decompose. Okay, yeah, because a lot of those seedlings, I mean, they're just starting to roll, you know, roll the field. So some of these areas, it's not even emerged yet or, at all yet either, but are just starting to. But you know, again, with soybeans, and some people have planted really early with soybeans too, Seth. Um, so again, what, what's your take on that as well too for assessing stands or, well, I should say the survivability if it's underwater? We're, we're really looking at the same um, kind of a time frame. Um, Jeff's right, a temperature really is is the driver here. Mid, you know, we, we often talk about mid-season drownouts. 
when we have 80, 90 degree temperatures, um, that really moves things along a lot faster. So when it's a little bit cooler, you know, it helps us on the side that these things can hang around a little bit longer. But on the other hand, our crop is also growing a little bit slower. So it takes a little bit of time to get out of it. And we don't have the evaporative demand to get rid of the, the water. So it's really, you know, a two-edged sword here, but yeah, it's, it's really in that kind of two to four um, day time frame. And I, I would assume um, that, um, you know, we, we're looking at the same kind of thing for submerged, you know, or plants that haven't emerged, sorry, plants that have not emerged versus emerged plants um, are probably going to be kind of in a similar situation. The newly germinated uh, soybeans, if they were planted just before the, the water came, we might have a little bit more time with those. Um, after they've germinated and started to um, put a radical out, you know, they're really kind of cranking out um, a lot of um, metabolically under the soil. So I would say that they'd probably be pretty similar to, um, to a plant that's just cracking and emerged. So I don't, I don't know that the, there's a huge distinction between uh, pre-emerged plants and those that have come up. Maybe Jeff has some other thoughts on it. I agree. Yeah. So, and what do you think too? Like once the water goes away from these areas, we're probably going to have, you know, that soil could, we could have a lot of crusting issues too. Anything, uh, any thoughts with that? Um, yeah, that'll be something to keep an eye on. Um, you know, some of these flooded areas, they may be a total loss. So we'll need to be prepared for that as well. Yeah, and I think the crusting is another issue. You know, we had, I think part of the problem, we had saturated soils from a from an earlier rain in some of these cases, and then we got another pretty big shot of rain. So I imagine that we've got significant crusting in some of these areas. So it, you know, we <laughs> sound like a broken record with a bunch of old extension people around here talking about rotary hoeing, but, um, you know, I think that farmers have to probably look at something like this for some of those areas, but yeah, it's going to be this divide between two wet um, areas that they can't get into. And then other areas that are the, the water is receded, but it's crusted. And, you know, these fields are really variable. That's the, that's the part that I have the hardest time um, giving advice because farmers have, you know, fields that'll have everything from hilltops to side slopes to, you know, low areas in the fields. And it'll be the whole gamut all in the same field and how to slice and dice that and manage those parts. Um, and they don't want to run on a lot of crop. They don't want to spend a lot of time turning around. And uh, it's, it's, it's one of these things that farmers are just going to have to do based on, on their, historical knowledge. I mean, there's a lot, you know, we, we deal with this every year in, you know, at some point in time and farmers have dealt with spring flooding on their fields, undoubtedly somewhere at some point in the past. And so drawing on their own knowledge is probably, uh, and their own logistics and their own equipment and, and things is probably the best thing that they can do. And of course there's key times, especially with soybeans, you don't want to be running the rotary hole, right? Um, you know, basically when you start getting that crook coming through the, the soil, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit too, Seth, or. Yeah, we just need to be really cautious with these things. I mean, it's again, you know, it, again, it's, it's a little bit of an art here because that's right when we're, when these soybeans are cracking is that when we kind of need to pay some attention to them and help them out a little bit. 
but it's also right at the time that they're most susceptible. So um, we don't, the worst thing is to wait too long and then be in a situation where we wish we would have gone in a little bit earlier. I think it's okay to try a little bit and see how it goes when they can go. Um, uh, and then just make sure and get uh, out of the tractor and, and, uh, and keep an eye on what's happening behind those, those implements, whatever they're using, probably a rotary hoe if they've still got those. Oh, good, good points. And, and Jeff, you know, there's going to be questions too. People always say, okay, if I've got water staining in my fields, because again, I've been through some of these areas and there's some pretty big lakes and some spots, not everybody's faced with this, but you know, every year we do have areas that are faced with the standing water and, you know, big concern then, of course, if you're producing corn, what's going to happen to the nitrogen? You know, did they lose nitrogen? Do they got to worry about putting supplemental nitrogen on, you know, and things like that. Any thoughts that you could say, again, considering the time of year that this hit and what our conditions have been like? And Yeah, so some nitrogen will be lost definitely due to denitrification. Uh, the amount of it that's lost depends on, you know, the duration of the flooding. Uh, but keep an eye on those areas. Um, they may need to have some additional N applied if uh, corn remains in that field. Um, uh, the U of M has a supplemental nitrogen worksheet uh, that it's online and one can kind of go through this thing and uh, basically answer a few questions and determine whether they need uh, an additional side dress application or not. If so, somewhere in the range of 40 to 70 pounds of N per acre is common. Uh, and on the lower end for corn following soybean and towards the higher end, usually for corn following corn. Yep, all excellent points. Um, the, good, the good side of this is that, you know, farmers are now pretty well set up for doing side dressing. Isn't that right, Jeff? It seems like, you know, I'm old enough to remember a day when, you know, everybody put fall anhydrous on. And if, if they had a problem, they were just stuck with it because they didn't, they, um, they weren't really set up to do a lot of in-season side dressing. And, you know, it's just, it seems like we're putting a lot of starters on now and, and farmers are really splitting a lot of this. So it seems like, seems to me as I drive around that farmers are, do a, have a, most have a pretty good access to doing some side dressing. Yep. Yeah. And we got a question here that popped up too, um, before I ask you some other questions here. It said, what options are there for no-tillers where a rotary hoe is not an option? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I would, you know, to back up, I mean, the no-tiller should be in a better situation because of the residue. Um, and I assume we're talking about soybeans in, in uh, following corn. So we've got a lot of corn residue out there. Um, you know, and we generally don't have as many issues with, with crusting in, in, um, in no-till. I just don't see it. So hopefully... Hopefully it isn't a, a big problem. If we've got real crusting issues following no-till, you know, I think if you have a really, really clean, if you've done a lot of work with um, residue removers, trash whipper kind of an operation and really opened up that, that, um, that over that row, I think that could uh, open things up. So, you know, maybe there's an opportunity if you're in that situation to actually rotary hoe a little bit right over the row we can hold up some of those shanks um, from um, some of those wheels and, you know, farmers are pretty ingenuitive, ingenious, and I don't know what the right word is. And they can probably, you know, with RTK, they can run through these fields pretty good. So maybe that would be an option for them. Yeah. Good, good point. And, 
you know, and, and again, so we're talking about, you know, assessing stands and all that. And, you know, what's kind of a just a review again, what's a good way to do that? Because regardless of what's happened, it's a good idea this time of year to be out there checking stands, see what things look like. Um, Jeff, what would you recommend for checking stands in corn right now? What, what kind of pro process do you uh, recommend people do? Well, first, you want to get several areas in the field. And the longer length of row that you can measure, probably the better. So traditionally people would measure one one thousandth of an acre, which is 17 feet, five inches in 30 inch rows. Then they'd count the number of plants on each side of that and uh, multiply by a thousand and that's your plant population. And then you'd wanna do that in probably 10 areas in the field. Um, another way that is potentially a little more accurate is to use a measuring wheel and just count plants as you're pushing the wheel down the row and uh, measure a longer length of row, such as a hundred feet. Um, then you're less, you know, then you've got a, a longer length of row. And if you're missing one plant, it doesn't have such a large impact on what the estimated plant population is. But yeah, the key is to just get out there and look at uh, various parts of the field, not just the best spots. Yeah, good point. And how about soybean? I mean, one one thousandth of a row, that could be a lot of soybean plants to count, Seth, but I see people talking about hula hoops and all this thing too, but do you have a kind of a general recommendation for checking stands that you like to use a soybean? Oh, Ben, you're muted. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, I, you know, it, it all depends on row spacing. For 30s, I do really like 17.5 um, is, a, is a good measure. Um, 20s, 22s, we can do the similar kind of thing, just a little bit longer row. Um, hula hoops are okay for drilled, but we don't have that many drilled soybeans anymore. So, um, you know, I think farmers just, just do what works best. I, I hate to give too many recommendations because, uh, we just want, we want people to take more stand counts. And so I don't want to limit people by giving a big, a big academic lecture on, on how to take us a, a, a proper stand count and rather they do more. Um, and, and just like you said, Liz, to get around the field, the, the, the reminder in soybean is just the, the stands at this, at this stage, uh, we're still pretty early. We can get in there and replant. So I think if, uh, I hadn't really considered this question before the call, although it's a, it's an important one is what those minimum stands would be today, uh, in order to take out a, a soybean stand, because it's a really tough question. We've still got pretty much maximum yields out there. So I think we'd have to have a deficient stand. So I think we'd have to be under 75,000 or something like that in order for a farmer to consider coming back and, and replanting um, that field. Um, Liz mentioned before the call, and it's a really good point, is that, that we can, and farmers do a lot of this spiking in around soybeans, and that really does work really quite well. So uh, again, just coming back and planting another pass between the rows uh, with soybean is really quite efficient, quite easy. Farmers can easily get behind this um, uh, psychologically because they don't feel like they're ruining anything and, and aren't getting rid of that earlier stand. We, we want to try to make a good nick with the maturity so that these things match up pretty well if they planted really early and had really tall beans, whatever those might look like this time of year. Uh, we may have to work a little bit at that angle, but um, we can always spike in a few more around them too. Yeah, and that would be my follow-up question with that. Like how, 
you know, at what point would it not be worth it to try to do that? Like how big would your soybeans have to be, you know, before you're like, oh, you know, I could tear up the soybeans that I've got, or there's going to be such a difference in, in size and material might shade, shade out the others. I mean, is that, do you have a good feel for that or kind of general recommendations on that? Again, we're really early in the season, but you know, just something to think about if we're yeah. thinking about that. Yeah, we're not, we're not there yet. So I think we've got, I think we'd have to have pretty tall soybeans for that to, to, to be the case. Um, and I don't remember the research on this, whether we looked at timing of those or not. Um, uh, I think the bigger issue is, is matching maturities. If, if they do get out to be V two, three, four, I, I think I would have a really hard time getting in there after V three, um, doing this kind of a thing. And by that time, um, you, we'd have to have a really, really thin stand originally. And then we'd, we'd probably be thinking about taking another, um, just removing those and, and starting over, you know, and the, the thing that's really changed in my world around this is just, is resistant weeds out there. We used to give very flat, clear recommendations on, on, um, on replant decisions. Uh, but it's really changed around weed control and what, what products are out for pre's, uh, what kind of weed spectrum people have, what they've got available to put on after. Um, the, those, those weed control issues are almost to the point where they're driving, driving the decision-making rather than just being kind of a, a caveat to it. So I, I think it's something, it's obviously something we have to consider as we make those decisions. Yeah, and I think like to get back to that topic of weed control here too, because uh, of course that is a big issue right now with uh, you know wanting to get those preherbicides down and and all that. But I do want to jump over to Jeff here. You know uh, when we're looking at stands, what stands would you feel good with uh, right now? Let's say if somebody has a spotty stand uh, out there, um, you know, and again there's all those factors to weigh with planting date and yield potential with that versus planting later. Um, but yeah, again, you know, if people are out there taking stands and they don't quite have a stand that they thought they should, you know, what, what's kind of the trade-offs there and what, what would you say? Oh, just leave it. it it's good sure. to go. Yeah. So for corn, if you have a final stand of 26,000 plants per acre, that'll give you a yield of about 96% of the maximum. With 23,000 plants per acre, you're going to have about 92% of your maximum yield. And that's assuming that the plants are, uh, that there's good spacing within the row and there's not large gaps. Uh, if, if there are large gaps, you're gonna have some additional yield losses. If the gaps are say 16 to 33 inches long, you're looking at an, an additional 2% yield loss on top of those. And if the gaps are up to four to six feet in size in the row, you're probably looking at another 5% yield loss. So corn can do actually quite well with low populations. Um, it can get pretty pretty good yields. It's not till you get like into the low twenty thousands or less when it you know you're you're approaching ninety percent yield or less, and then at that point that those may be scenarios for considering replanting. But you know when your final stand is twenty four thousand or above, it's you know corn can still do pretty good, assuming that there's not huge gaps or if there are gaps that they're not that common. And, and you bring up a good point too. It's like, so I'm looking at the calendar here. We're May 17th, you know, again, some of these areas people are, are planting now, you know, what's kind of the yield potential we figure on average of corn, or again, if you're in an area that you got to get replanted, um, 
you know, what's our yield, what yield potential are we looking at? And do we need to start thinking about switching hybrids here pretty soon too, or is that have been delayed or if we have to replant? Yeah, well, we still got good yield potential right now. Um, between 2009 and 2006 or 2016, we did 26 planting date trials across Minnesota. And on average across those trials, if we planted between May 13 and May 19, we were still getting 97 to 98% of maximum yield. And if our planting got delayed until May 20th to the 25th, we're looking at about 95% of maximum yield. And if we planted between May 26 and May 30, looking at about 92% of maximum yield. So uh, we do have good yield potential yet. I think things to remember are, even though the calendar is getting late, we want to avoid getting out in the fields when they're too wet. Um, the soil should crumble a depth at one inch below the depth of tillage. And we don't want to be getting out there when it's too wet because then we're going to have clod, we're going to create clods and that's going to cause air pockets in the soil and that's going to restrict how quickly the water imbibes from the, into the seeds and that can hinder emergence and other things. Um, we still have time uh, to get a good, to get the crop in and get a good yield. And for corn, it, it all pretty much comes down to the weather that's two weeks before the tassels emerge and the three weeks after the tassels emerge. That's the key driver of corn yield, assuming that you've got an acceptable stand uh, set up uh, from your planting. So we are not at the point where you want to be mudding it in, right? <laughs> and uh, right. May here. And what about, yeah, and just a little bit, did, I don't know if you mentioned, did you mention like maturities? Is there a point where you'd be switching maturities or? Sure, yeah. So once we get to May 22, that's a time when we want to start thinking about what maturity do we have and do we need to switch to something that's earlier? So between May 22 and May 28, we want to think about something that's five to seven relative maturity units earlier than what's considered full season for your area. So when you think about that, you also want to think about, well, the hybrid that I ordered in the first place, was that a full season for my area or not? In most cases, it may be. In some cases, it may be a couple units shorter than uh, what's considered full season. So that may give you a little flexibility as well. And then when, when we get to May 29 to June 4, we want to be looking at something that's 8 to 15 relative maturity units shorter than full season. And hopefully we won't get that late. <laughs> and how, how about on the soybean end, Seth? Um, you know, again, when we look at yield potential and planting, because of course we know planting date plays a big role in yield potential with soybeans as well. And, you know, what are we kind of looking at for yield potential for something planted now or in about a week when things would dry out? And, and when do we need to be thinking about switching maturities there too? Those, yeah, those, our yield curves in soybeans are really similar to corn uh, at this stage of the year. Uh, so we're still in that near yield potential, um, um, maximum potential for this time of year. So we're still in good shape. Once we get out to uh, May 20, then things start to tip down a little bit. So we lose about a half a percent yield potential per day after uh, May 20 and then through early June, then, you know, once we get into the second, third week of June, then we're, we're losing a, a full percentage point per day. Uh, so it, we, it takes a little while to get there, but you know, this is cumulative. And so uh, we don't want to wait too long, uh, but of course, you know, just as, as mentioned, we just have to make sure we have good conditions to get out there. So there's still plenty of time. The big the big difference in soybean, obviously, is maturities. We can hold maturities quite a bit longer. Um, the only 
you know, I would generally, our, our historical recommendation is June 10 uh, to switch uh, maturities on soybean. I would say that we do have a really wide range of maturities that farmers are planting now. So farmers should just be really conscious. Are they, are they, are there varieties that they have in the bag, you know, considered fairly long for their um, local environment or are they relatively short? And that makes a big difference whether they should, should switch those out. If they've had, if they've been having really good luck planting very long season varieties, you know, they need to pull the trigger and move those a little bit earlier. On the other hand, if farmers have been really conservative and they have short season varieties because they yield well for their environment, they're, you know, they're people that want to get cover crops or manure out in the fall, they should just hold those. Um, there's no reason to switch those out uh, anytime soon and, and probably will have no problem planting those all the way through, um, even in, well into June. So, um, you know, just a couple of little variants there on that. Okay, yeah, and I see we have a question that kind of relates to this, like, is there a resource uh, where we can calculate the recommended relative maturity for our area at such and such a planning date? Um, Actually, we're working on that right now. Uh, we're, we're developing a, um, a planting date um, ma um, app that, that takes that into, that uses uh, crop models, uh, local environmental um, you know, our, our local environmental weather, uh, photo period and, and temperature profiles. Um, and we hope to integrate that with, with future weather as well, so that we can, we can both look at frost risk on both ends of the season. So that's with early planting, uh, as well as late season stuff as well. So we're, we're working on that. There isn't anything right now. Uh, we'll have, we'll have static maps this summer, probably developed from that project, but then by this year at this time, we should have some some sort of an app or some sort of a, a thing that people can go to and and just put in their their drop a pin and and um and I'll give them some guidance on soybean maturities. Well, that sounds pretty cool. And I know you have some uh, articles on our website as well, just kind of talking about the differences, you know, how it's more advantageous to get that earlier planning date with those fuller season versus, you know, you see the bigger payoff versus the earlier season. But so there is some information on that on our website, on our soybean page um, as well. And, and I think another question we have here too, I think you've kind of have addressed this already, but yes, what about the corn and soybean stand question a week from now when fields dry out and are accessible? So I think again, just kind of balancing out, like you said, that maturity, you know, potential, well, we don't really need to be switching yet at that point, but look at the yield potential and things like that. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Because, uh, again, if it's really wet, it's going to take a while to get back into those fields. Well, next week will be, you know, next Monday is May 22. So that would be the date when we want to think about our the relative maturity of our hybrids and if we need to be shortening them up or not. And then also if we look at uh, if we planted between May 20 and May 25, we're looking at about 95 percent of maximum yield. And if we plant it on May 26 to May 30, we're looking at about 92% of maximum yield. So then trying to weigh that in comparison to what, what stand you do have out there. And, you know, if you have a final stand of 26,000 for corn, you're looking at about 96% of maximum yield. And if you got a final stand of around 23,000, you're looking at 92% of maximum yield. So kind of trying to weigh uh, whether it would be beneficial to replant or keep the existing stand. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and again, you've got a lot of nice resources online as well, too, on our extension crops or corn website, too. And uh, just one thing with the planning date, I know um, another year where we were faced with a wet spring, and um, I think it was 2019, we did that planning date survey as well, too. And I just remember some comments that just stuck out because we did a farmer survey. And so if this farmer that entered that survey is listening, I'm reminding you, he said, remind me to never plant corn in June. So... <laughs> You know, that just some of them just did not have uh, very good luck with that. But anyway, I know you can push it a little bit, but hopefully we're not going to be faced with that situation this year. Um, any other comments? I see we're getting close to the end of the time here. We did want to get back to that weed, weed control part two again. I mean, if people didn't get their pre-emergence herbicides down, you know, there are a number of products you can apply uh, post-emergence. You want to get that residual control out there, certainly since we have so many issues with water hemp. Make sure you're checking those labels though. Uh, uh, make, yeah, again, to make sure you can apply that, what the windows are and so forth. Uh, any final comments, uh, Seth, I'll ask you first, any final comments you wanna have before we wrap it up today? No, just based on your last comment though, I think if they didn't get a pre-down, um, you know, they may, if they had a good pre-plan, they may not have had a really uh, hot um, post um, plan. So it might be a time to, reallocate some of those dollars they save from their pre and, and get a better post um, uh, ordered up for them. Uh, that might be an option and psychologically a way to, to kind of make that move into spending a little bit more than they planned on based on savings earlier. The other thing I would, you know, recycle this, this point earlier I made about um, stands and soybeans. And I mean, I just want farmers to really think about what their crop is going to look like middle of the season. If they do have areas that are thin, it may not be that advantageous yield-wise or economically to plant or spike more soybeans in. But if they can reduce, if they can get a better canopy in some of those small spots, and even if it's an acre or two that they uh, can reduce the, the weed pressure late season, that could really reduce their stress later in the year and trying to deal with some of those things. So Extra canopy and soybean is really our friend. And so even outside the yield side of this, I think farmers should really work to get a good, even heavy canopy in their soybean crop mid-season for, for weed control. It's, it's, really our, it's really a big hammer out there for us. Good, good points there. How about you, Jeff? Any parting comments here before we wrap it up for today? No. Nope. All right. Well, I hope everybody has a... Uh, hope we have some nice weather and everybody can wrap up planting and we have a successful and safe rest of the planting season here and, and field season. And again, I'd like to thank everybody for attending our uh, UM Extension Strategic Farming Field Notes program today. And again, when you log off, there's a really short survey. We really do appreciate your feedback for that. Again, it's really short. We also ask for questions that you'd like addressed next week. And of course, we'd like to thank our speakers, uh, Seth Name and Jeff Coulter, uh, today as well. And uh, have a great rest of the day, and we'll see you next week. Oh, and I got to make sure I thank our sponsors to the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of the week.